Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. On our episode this week, we're delighted to share with you a talk from our Pastoral Refreshment Conference archive. This is a talk from 2014 by Mike Reeves, where he spoke to us on Hebrews 1 and 2. As the audio was recorded live at the event, it isn't perhaps as high quality as we would usually bring you on the podcast. However, we would encourage you to bear with the quality as the message contained within is a real encouragement for us as we walk with the Lord. Here's today's episode. Good morning. We're reading Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 5. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And furthermore, the future world we are talking about will not be controlled by angels. For somewhere in the scriptures it says, What is man that you should think of him, and the son of man that you should care for him? For a little while you made him lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honour. You gave him authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all of this happen. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels and now is crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death for us. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone in all the world. And it was only right that God, who made everything and for whom everything was made, should bring his many children into glory. Through the suffering of Jesus, God made him a perfect leader, one fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will declare the wonder of your name To my brothers and sisters, I will praise you among all your people. He also said, I will put my trust in him. And in the same context, he said, here I am, together with the children God has given me. Morning, everyone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you. Every day we need you. As long as it is called today, without you, we find that we shrivel in on ourselves. We shrivel in on our own glory, our own concerns, into our own lives. And we lose joy, the joy of knowing you. We need you. And so, great Father, we depend now on the life-giving power of your word. By your word, you are capable of bringing worlds into existence, life into existence, light into darkness. Do that for us now, we pray. Would you open our eyes afresh to see who you are and all you've done and are doing for us, that we might share your son's own delight in you, And we pray, would you, through your word, bring us a lively, warm joy that gives us a strength to face whatever we are facing now. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Well, we uh, were looking yesterday, if you uh, remember, at how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything. Jesus is better than angels. And that theme is still just going in our passage in chapter 2, verse 5. 
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere. I love how Hebrews does that the whole time. Somewhere, it says, Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels for a while. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It is a wonderful moment and an amazing fulfillment because all that we know now is this being a little lower than the angels. It's all we've really seen of Jesus, really, a lowly man. And that's our experience of life, low, down here, weak, rather pathetic, crumbling, tumbling down (coughs) towards decay and death. So sure, Adam was created to be the ruler over all things, filling the earth and subduing it, but that's never really been part of what it is to be human as we've experienced it. Adam really threw that away. And so, verse 8, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to man, mankind. At the moment, we see mankind at the mercy of every disease, every earthquake, at the mercy even of the weather. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He is crowned with glory and honor. J.R.R. Tolkien called that flip a eucatastrophe. In fact, he called it the greatest eucatastrophe possible. He meant that Jesus' exaltation from the grave to the throne of heaven was a catastrophic event, but it was a good catastrophe, a eucatastrophe. It is, he wrote to his son Christopher, it is the sudden happy turn in the story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears, for your whole nature, chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief, as if a major limb out of joint has suddenly snapped back. For bursting through death, bursting through the death that seems to surround us the whole time, out of the grave the sun overturned the old order, or disorder, we should say, of Adam. And what Adam was created to be was fulfilled in him. The reign of death and corruption was undone, and for the first time that morning, a man stood, body and soul, wholly beyond the reach of the curse. And Just think clearly there was more righteousness in him than there was sin in us. When he dealt with our sin and borne it all, death had no further hold on him. More righteousness in him than sin in us. A man, no longer a victim to the serpent's wiles, but now a man, truly a king, truly victorious over the serpent and ruling over all. All things. Psalm 8 fulfilled at last. What humanity was meant to be fulfilled at last. Now, all that happened, that glorious eucatastrophe happened because, as Paul puts it, the Father declared him through the Spirit with power to be the Son of God. That's Romans 1 verse 4. That is why Christ was raised. Because having declared the full extent of God's love on the cross, having done that, the Father declared that he was in fact in himself righteous and therefore declaring, justifying his son, declaring him righteous, He declared him to be utterly worthy of life, 
utterly worthy of the throne, worthy to be called the righteous son of God. Death could not hold such a one. And so his exaltation was all about being declared the son of God. In fact, some people, some scholars take that that chain of references in Hebrews 1, the father declaring his son, some scholars take that to be all about the ascension. All about this declaration, the exaltation being a declaration that he is the son of God. And, and in chapter two, it seems to be slightly more about his exaltation is about him being truly the son of man. But in both cases, truly son of God, truly son of man, he is exalted because he's truly this righteous son. Fulfilling all that man was meant to be, fulfilling what it is to be the righteous son of God. And so the son is brought home, home, home to where he belongs, affirmed, exalted as who he is, nothing more than he is, nothing more than he deserves. He's recognized to be who he is, home, beyond death, beyond pain, affirmed. Now, then we read verse 10. Then we read verse 10. Here we go. What was all that about? Because if you think about for eternity, he'd been the exalted son of God. So why is this such a big deal? He's eternally been the son of God. So why is that a big deal for him? Because what was it all for? Verse 10 He was bringing many sons to glory. That's what it was all about. For the son had eternally lived in glory. So this wasn't something he was doing for himself, getting some glory he'd never had before. No. He came down from heaven and united himself with us that in him we might share his exaltation. People often ask about the sort of verses you see in chapter 1, today I've become your father. Strange language. Is it that he wasn't the son before? No. Absolutely not that. We see many times in eternity. We see Jesus referring back to eternity past. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's declared to be the son in the incarnation of his baptism, of his transfiguration. So what's the big deal about his being declared the son at the resurrection and ascension? What's the big deal about him being declared the son in history at all? Well, when this man is declared to be the son, for the first time, a man is declared to be the beloved son of God. And therein is our salvation. And so that means so much for us. What was eternally true of him, we are caught up into it. Theologians in the early post-apostolic church used to like putting it like this. The son of God became human that humans might become sons of God. He comes down to share our life, to catch us up, to share his. See, later in chapter 6, Hebrews goes on to talk about Jesus as our forerunner. Where he goes, we go. He's the head, we're the body. And so what's true of him becomes true of us. He's crowned with honor. He's declared to be the beloved son. And where he goes, we go. In him, part of his body, we're crowned with his glory and honor. Can you believe that? We, failing sinners, are crowned in him with his glory and honor. Since we're in him, the words of the Father apply to us. Come on, Ian. Just make a little comment on the difference in translations between the one we had read and the one I'm going to use now. Because they've both got their advantages, I think. They've both got something helpful. And I wonder if you notice the difference in what I read. So the New Living Translation we had earlier very helpfully talked about brothers and sisters. 
children, sons and daughters, that sort of language, all inclusive, which is really helpful to hear. That what we're talking about, the salvation we're talking about, is true for all of us. Now, I hope this is okay. I'm going to stick, as I speak, with the language of the ESV, which focuses on sons of God and brothers. Now, let me tell you why I'm going to do that. It's not because I'm being sexist, forgetful, chauvinist, anything like that. It's a very deliberate reason. I want to, in this time, focus on the truth that adopted in the Son of God, united to him, believers are not simply given some generic status of children. I think that's very easy for us to think, that you have the father loving his son, and then you've got Christians out there. Children of God in some sort of vague sense. So the father really loves the son, and then the oh yeah, it's that lot as well. Mm. <laughs> but no, no, no. The salvation we are given is we are united into the son. And so the, the status we are all given is very specifically the life and status of the son of God. For men and women. So if we were speaking about Ephesians 5, I'd be qualifying to the guys, you're part of the bride of Christ. And I'm going to use feminine language now. Just deal with it. Guys are part of the bride of Christ, and the ladies enjoy the status of the son. His precise status of being so beloved, full inheritance rights. Nothing less than the status of the son. So I hope that's okay. I just want to explain that. If that grates with you at all, that's why I want to do it. For that reason alone, to say, all of us share the status of the Son. You see then, this is the eternal life he has to offer. The life of the Son of God. This is not some abstract heaven we're given. This is not mere forgiveness. This is the salvation that he offers. Because that is who he is. It's not forgiven, whoops, I've mucked my slate up again. It's brought into the family of the Father. In the Son, accepted as him. And that makes all the difference to how I daily live as a Christian. Knowing that's where I've been brought to. Because first and foremost, it means I am not an employee under contract. Fearing being shown the door the moment I slip up. No. I, though I do slip up, can always cry Abba. Every morning, every morning, with the Son's own confidence, we can say, Father, Abba, and pour it our hearts to him. Now I find that crucifies my cold-heartedness and despair. That takes a dagger to the serpent's hiss when I fail. That makes a radical shift in my prayer life from feeling I just can't pray, knowing the state of my own heart, to feeling, well, if, if there's Abba Father waiting to hear from me, my heart just starts pouring out to him. Now, this is something we can never afford to move on from in Christian leadership. This is not a Christian basic that's nice for the beginner's course, but we've kind of been there, done that. But I think easily we do. And here's why I think we do it. So particularly easy is it for those who are in Christian leadership to shackle their identity not to the Son of God, but to what they do as leaders. And here's how I find it works out. That instead of knowing myself to be a Son of God, the sheer allotment of my time, the weight of what I do with my days and hours, means that I come to perceive myself primarily as a leader and not as a Son of God. Does that make sense? Right. It's just that, that's what I'm doing with my whole time. That's how many people seem to see me a lot of the time. And so that's how I come to see myself. And when that becomes my primary identity, what I find is I am as fragile as a puffed up balloon. 
And when things are going well, what I find is, well, the spotlight feeds my ego. And then very quickly I find actually things can't be going well because of precisely that. Because as soon as my ego is being fed by standing up the front, then what happens is I start bulldozing people because my name, my glory, trumps caring for my brothers and sisters because I've filled my own vision. And you think when it concerns me, you think how pathetic you are. But we're all prone to this. And one of the ways I think that comes out most often in Christian leadership, in, in one of the subtle but most common ways, is in public prayer. In that, if you approach God, when you come to the front and stand up in front of other people for them to hear your prayer, if you approach God primarily not as a beloved son dependent on him, if you approach God as the respected leader, what's it do to the tone of the prayer? You know what it does. It adds basically pomposity, distance. And so you cultivate in all those who hear you the same distance from God and pomposity and hypocrisy you are showing. Now, of course, things don't go well in leadership for that long. And so the pride has got to take a hit. If it hasn't yet, it will. And so what I find is when I identify myself primarily as a leader and not as a son of God, when difficulty or failure strikes, then I implode. Sometimes dramatically. Normally, very subtly which is nice because people don't spot that, but more difficult and dangerous because people don't spot that. And the reason is that when the very core of my identity has become I am leader, when that's the core of my identity, then my identity as son of God really can't be threatened by anything. But my identity as a leader can be. So if that's the core of my identity, then when failure hits, that failure becomes a mortal wound for me. Rather than just being a scrape on an extremity, which is what it should be. And so I become bitter or apathetic not daring to care anymore, knowing how much it hurt last time. And I did. I become defensive, no longer outward-looking and generous like my father, but prickly, overly cautious, about really preserving my status quo. I don't want any more failures to happen. I just want to lock it down and be safe. And so... The bully, the pompous, the patronizing leader, and the cowardly, the overly defensive, the desperate leader, they are the two ends of the same spectrum. Both are identifying themselves primarily as leaders, not sons of God. And unlike the Son of God, both are uncaring. One is consumed with pride. The other is consumed with jealousy. One's a bulldozer. One's a jelly. And neither are good leaders. Neither are being like the Son of God. But before we are ever leaders... We are children, brothers and sisters. We are children. Sharing the son's own life with the father. And if anything else, if anything else is our primary identity before being sons of God, 
then everything about our leadership will be perverted and toxic because it's built upon unchristian foundations. You can mask it by being slick, but the foundations will be deeply rotten. And so our adoption as sons of God has very deep work to do in our hearts. You see, our adoption as sons of God in Christ, of course, immediately gives us a new status, immediately gives us total security before the Father. But for that status and new life to be felt to be the deepest truth about ourselves, well, that's a very deep and lifelong work. Can I give you two personal examples about me just to show you the kind of way in which this works? Um, first example, I'm a younger brother. Um, and I was always thought um, by my parents who, who loved me and my brother and in many ways treated as, as equally as they could. But I was always thought to be the slightly useless, head in the clouds, academic. My brother's very competent. I was the younger brother, and I wonder if that's given in me a thirst to prove myself. To prove I'm not useless. Which is my own personal way of denying Christ's work of bringing many sons to glory by pure grace. That's a battle of identities that's there in me that goes right back to my birth. My first birth. Then I was sent to public school, and if my accent grates on you slightly, then um, maybe you'll pity me in a moment. Because until I was 21, until I was about 21 or so, I was brought up being told, or it was in the atmosphere and often explicit, being told, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. You're the best, you're the richest, you're the brightest, you're one of the world's born leaders. It wasn't personal, it was just where I was brought up. If you don't feel pity yet, here's how it fell out for me. That killed me spiritually. And I felt in the environment where I grew up, in many ways, that preachers preached up to us. As if... I could stand as judge over Jesus to consider his little claims. And I felt, to be honest, that Jesus was honored to have me on his side. And that was kind of where I was coming from, my personal background. And it took a profound crash to begin the healing process for me. And I had to be broken to know the joy of being a dependent son. See, I hadn't been dependent because, well, didn't I have a lot to depend on before, I thought. And when I could let go of that and know myself to be a dependent son, then, well, there was a freedom there, a freedom from the self-dependent pride. But there's, there's two personal examples just to show you how primal these battle of identities can be. And those are just a couple of things I have. But for our health, for our joy, we must take arms against the insidious idea that we have anything about us, whether it's background, ability, status of some sort, that in any way is more basic than that of being sons of God. For our joy, we must fight for this. Because if something else is your more basic identity, my brother, my sister, I promise you, you will lose joy from it. Tempting though it may be, any other identity is not worth going for. If we do, and this is a hard fight, if we do fight for this, our identity as sons, children of God, I think what will happen is this. People will notice we are more tender-hearted, more generous, more attractively humble 
because we're no longer living out of our own selfish, sinful identity that we've somehow pathetically constructed around ourselves. We're living out of the identity of the humble, generous, self-giving Son of God. That's our identity. That's shaping our character. And do you mind, can I give you a couple of practical thoughts on this, our fight for our identity? This is the sort of thing we could be chatting about later on, if this would be helpful. But just a couple of thoughts to ensure that in real ways we're fighting for our identity. First, I think we have to ensure that in real ways we are part of the body of Christ. In real ways we are part of the people not set apart or isolated. Now, I know that for some of us especially, that is very, very hard. Because leadership does isolate. Now, we can contribute to our own isolation very well ourselves. Now, perhaps particularly those of us who are introverted by nature. We can contribute to our own isolation, but having been, spent all our time with people, we just want to go away. We just want a bit of time to ourselves. And I'm not knocking that. I'm an, I'm an introvert. That's, that's where I'm at. But it's not just our own tendency to isolate ourselves if you have that, but leadership itself does the job quite well enough. It seems to isolate people. But it is so much harder to see yourself as a son of God, first and foremost, if you are isolated from people or if you're raised above them. If you're spending all your time giving out the gospel and never, never having the gospel offered to you. And so I think we need to work for this in our local church. We need to try to ensure that locally, ideally in the local church, we have real friends around us, friends who will speak truth and encouragement to us. Now, I know that's simply not always possible in a local church situation. Situations vary, I, I know. If that makes you despair, because you think, I'm church planting to a very raw area, there's no way I've got a friend that's right there. Well, if that's not possible, we must work to ensure that we have true friends somewhere around us, close, regularly. Now, friends who are going to speak the truth to us, who are going to treat us as simple brothers and sisters. Um, I've been in a fraternal since I was at college. It's just um, three guys. It's a very small little group of us. Um, this has been a lifesaver for the three of us. And it's been a real oasis of refreshment and growth. And I think the three of us have really learned to pastor by pastoring each other before ever inflicting others with our lack of wisdom. I think we've really learned with each other. And so if you do not have such a close group of friends, can I implore you to sort one out? Get yourself such close alliances, find at least a couple of friends who you like and who you trust and covenant together to support each other down through the years to come, to meet up with each other regularly. And one caution on this, I'm not saying simply for accountability. This isn't just about putting fences around your behavior and asking each other, are you doing naughty things? There's a place for that, but I'm not just talking about accountability. I'm talking about true friends nourishing each other, positively encouraging each other in Christ, pouring living water into each other's lives where you're at. It's a life-giving fight for our identity as sons of God. Let's go on to look at how Hebrews speaks of our sharing the Son's life. So verse, uh, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all are of one, one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Pause on that. 
Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And therefore, Hebrews 11, God is not ashamed to be known as our God. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Think of that day when we stand before the throne. He won't be ashamed. Here's my brother. Father, here's my brother. Not ashamed. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. There's some work in Hebrew and in Isaiah 8 and 9 to do if you want to tease that strangeness out. Um, but that's for looking at later. You see, he takes our flesh and blood, shares our life, that we might share his, share his sonship and glory. And so we're said to be of his family, brothers. Yes, brothers and sisters, but let's say brothers to keep that sonship, his precise status, no less. And look, just look how it's put in that lovely quotation from Psalm 22. There are two bits to it. Do you notice? Two bits to it. First, I will tell of your name to my brothers. I think that's the bit we focus on. That he tells us, he speaks to us, he reveals God to us. I think it's the second that's more extraordinary. He also says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He says, surrounded by his brothers. Surrounded in the, by the sons of God, in the congregation of the saints, he leads their praise. He is our ultimate worship leader. So as the faithful firstborn son of God, he says, I'll put my trust in him. And we'll say, amen. That's how it works. That's the life of the sons of God, sharing his life. We are in him and we are with him all the way. And that makes the profoundest difference to the Christian life because it is not like Christ has done his bit and now we've got to do ours. Life's tiring if that's how it is. And, but that's how it is if the gospel is simply about getting heaven. <laughs> Christ has won it, time to be grateful. Hooey. Tiring, huh? No. There's so much to be grateful for. But we don't just look back in gratitude for what he has done for us. Life now, our new and eternal life, is about entering into the very life of the Son. That's what we've been called to. That's the life we've been given, the life of the Son. Joy, prayers, mission, holiness. Suffering, hope, all of that, a participation in the life of the Son. He's joyful, we share his joy. He prays, we pray with him. He is holy, set apart with a holy happiness, and we share it with him. He's on mission, and we go out with him beyond the camp. He suffers, we suffer with him. He has hope, and that is ours. He is in the midst of the congregation at the front, singing God's praises, and we sing with him. He delights to do the will of the Father. He loves to do the will of the Father. It is as food to him to do his Father's will. And slowly, slowly, with the spirit of him in me, I am moved to find that is my delight too, slowly. That becomes my highest delight. He is a king there at the front, victorious over all evil. And we find that we share his victory and we slowly get to watch sin trampled under our feet. He's a king and we share his kingship. He is a priest before his father, 
interceding for his people and his world. And we share and join in with his prayers to our father now. We intercede for the world and for his people. We're being like him. We share his priesthood. He's a prophet making known his father to the world. And we join in and make his father known to the world. He's a prophet, priest and king. And makes us in him. Prophets, priests, and kings sharing his sonship. We are not simply given this thing called eternal life until get out there and get on with it. We are not the forerunners with ultimate responsibility. He is the firstborn, and we live in his slipstream, riding his way. And life is so much less tiring when you get that that's how it works. It means you are not on your own facing a list of tasks. You are not the indispensable one. You are not the infallible one. You are entering in all you do into what it means to be the Son of God, sharing his agonies, sharing his passions, sharing his concerns, sharing his joy. There's our drive. It's not personal ambition or desperation to build in our own strength. We have this desire given by the Spirit to press in, in the power of the Spirit, to know what it is to be a Son of God. That's our new life. And that is the only strength that will last. If you try to be a leader in the strength of the fact that you're youngish and still have a lot of physical energy, that will go. And you're working against the grain of the universe and the gospel. And so zeal found on other bases will sooner or later die through age and the sheer amount of disappointments. But entering into the life of the sun, there is ever-growing life and freedom. There is the life we're made for. Now, something that's emphasized in Hebrews 2 here is that the life of the Son of God is one of suffering. Verse 10. It's fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Because he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Because we suffer, he came to suffer, to be truly one, truly one with us. We'll look at that more tomorrow. But to take us beyond all suffering. But it does mean that the life of the Son of God is one of going through suffering to glory. If the forerunner suffered, we are going to suffer. Redemptive work is costly for a start isn't it? And more than the Son of God himself, we have so much to learn. Hebrews 12 picks this up. Again, this theme of the Lord disciplining sons he truly loves. He disciplines his children for our good, for our good as a loving father, so that, do you remember Hebrews 12, we might enjoy a harvest of righteousness and peace. And so, as it says in Hebrews 12, don't lose heart when he rebukes you. Don't lose heart, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. Don't lose heart. But I think more fundamental than that, what will actually give us the ability to face that suffering 
more foundational before anything else, underneath it all, what it means to share the life of the Son of God is this. Sons cry in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It is because the Son delights in his Father, that's why he says, I'll put my trust in him. He trusts him because he delights in him. That's why he makes his father's name known to his brothers, because he delights to do it. Before all things, the heart of the life of the son is praise, joy, delight in his father. And that's what we've been brought in to share, to find our own joy and satisfaction, as the son always has in the father. And then we're being most Christ-like, most human, most what we were made to be. I think this is important, that it may seem rare language to talk about our enjoyment of God, our joy in Christ. And so because it's slightly rare, unfortunately, to hear this sort of language, you could think, does this mean that if you get into joy in God stuff, does this mean we're sort of entering a slightly kooky, eccentric, weird Christian world? Absolutely not, quite the opposite. But this is what we're made to be. To know Joy in God is what we were made for, and therefore to experience and know more joy in him will make you more rounded. A person of head and heart, wanting the light of knowing God to create warmth, warm life in you. Both. You want the light and the heat, not one without the other. Enjoying God makes a people of broad concerns who delight in the light and cherish the good. You see, joy is not a bonus because it is right at the heart of the son's own life with the father. And that's the life we've been brought into. Now, something I've become more and more convinced of something I've come to appreciate more and more is this. What in the end turns out to be more formative of the character of a church than anything else down through the years is this. The disposition of its leadership. What older writers called the presence or absence of a certain tincture. Isn't that a great word? Uh, something in the atmosphere about them. Do they know themselves to be dependent children? Sons of God entering the life of the Son, seeking joy in the Father. If they do, their church will feel so much more like a family. And all who experience their leadership will taste the gospel very differently. Because they will sense the atmosphere of what it means to be a son, enjoying the confidence, the dependence before an all-loving father, to know that security, to know that identity. It is important for leaders because, first and foremost, it's important for Christians. We've been made to share the Son's own delight in the Father, to join in with his prayers. That's where health is to be found, in the midst of the congregation, sharing the life of the Son, echoing him, singing his praise. And therefore, it is no small thing that Hebrews ends in chapter 13. After all the theology with the profoundest application in verse 15, you don't need to turn to it, Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, don't forget that bit, through him, he's the firstborn, he's where our identity is to be found, through him, then 
let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let's do that now. Abba, Father, once before you opened our eyes, we thought that to praise you was drudgery, a burden. We thought you were less than delightful. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for seeing that you are the source of all joy. You are the beautiful one, and that with you is life, true life, refreshment, calm, balm, comfort. And so, Father, we sing your praise now with the firstborn echoing his pure and holy praise. We stand behind him and cry, Amen, Amen, to you be all praise. And we pray, would you by your spirit give us a sense, a deeper growing sense of our sonship, our childhood before you, that every day we press into that secure and happy intimacy with you, calling you Abba, that we might find our joy and unburden ourselves before you every day. And we pray that as we sing, we praise you, that will pass on to those who know us. That people might not see proud, puffed up, petty leaders, scared, cowardly, self-dependent, cautious leaders, but sons of God. Leading as sons of God. And may that affect the tincture all around us. For Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving a review on your podcast app to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. You'll find us on any major social media platform, at Living Leaders, or visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll also find more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. God bless.